everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes for the third podcast in this series on the Christian foundations of the West. Today, we're covering Glenn Scrivener's book, The Air We Breathe. And of all these books, I've really enjoyed all three of these books and enjoyed talking about them. This one is the shortest. It's the easiest to read, but it has a little bit of a different angle than the others. So what were your thoughts on this book? Uh, it obviously had some of the similar ideas. He starts this book, Cole, with an idea we've seen in all of these before. He uses the analogy of a fish in water, and uh, which is a, a great analogy, is the idea of if one fish is talking to another fish and says, hey, how's uh, how's the water today? And the other fish says, what are you talking about? I mean, they it, it's so around them that they don't notice it. And he says this in his book, he said, the extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. You already hold particularly Christian-ish views, and the fact that you think of these views or values as natural or obvious or universal shows how profoundly the Christian revolution has shaped you. We saw this in Tom Holland's book, and we saw this same idea in Andrew Wilson's book. So mm -hmm. I think it starts off with that common connection of we don't even notice how infused our culture is with Judeo-Christian values. Yeah, there's a lot of common ground between these three books, and it's obvious once you read all three of these, and especially if you listen to interviews, so, you know, Glenn Scrivener mm -hmm. and Andrew Wilson did a podcast series together on the post-Christian world. Tom okay. Holland has been on Glenn Scrivener's podcast. I don't know if Andrew Wilson and Tom Holland, but they could really, they could close the loop by doing a podcast or something together. <laughs> right. These guys have talked together and they use a lot of common sources. You'll read some of the same people that are referenced in all of these books um, or you'll see, especially Tom Holland's book, being referenced in a lot of these other books. And so there's mm -hmm. a whole ecosystem here that shares this common concept of the roots of our society, the foundations of the West, have Christian themes, ir undeniably, irreversibly Christian themes. But if I were going to separate the three of them, mm -hmm. in Wilson's book, Remaking the World, you get the making of the post-Christian world. What happened particularly in the year 1776 that made the world what it is today? And right. many of those things would be things we would consider post-Christian or ex-Christian mm -hmm. is one of the terms that he uses. So can only come out of a Christian world, but explains a lot of why we would say people are living their lives according to Christian values, but not necessarily as Christians. The second book, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, we discussed the Christian foundations and values that are apparent in our world, that you actually can't have the West without Christian ingredients. And then in this book, he has this in the first section of the book, these values that we live by, the air we breathe, the water we swim in. But he combines the Christian roots and the post-Christian reality with a really good apologetic portion at the end. It kind of mm -hmm. asks the questions, okay, so what for Christians? So we live in a world that has Christian values, whether they know it or not. We also live in a world that is actually less Christian in terms of the number of Christians and people that would say, I believe the maybe metaphysical and theological beliefs of Christianity. What, what does this mean for Christians? And I think that's where the real value of this book comes in. 
Mm-hmm. The first section, it he picks out seven values that he say has says we all share: equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. You're going to notice that at least two of those, or, or at least five of those, are shared with Andrew Wilson's book because they're both right. working with this book, the weirdest people in the world, and the weird acronym mm-hmm. of their of the values. But on the whole, you're going to see. Uh, uh, great continuity between Tom Holland's book as well, because these themes, although he does it in a narrative way, pop up throughout history as Christians are remaking the world that they live in. So part of what stuck out to me was just how deeply seated a lot of these things are in our world, such that there are certain things that we would say, like equality or compassion, for example, I don't even equate with those things, but once he spells it out, you realize, oh, these are so ingrained in our society. So even something as simple as the belief that an old person and a young person actually have the same value, they have the same dignity as a human being. Right. Even though in our society actually is kind of wavering on this maybe a little bit, they don't have the same utility, but they have the same value. And right. that is a very distinctly Christian idea. And that's, I think... In this book, he puts that under the equality section, that all humans have an inherent dignity and worth, no matter mm-hmm. what their utility is. We could we could go in a lot of different directions with that, but it just goes to show how deep-seated that is in our culture. And the same with these other things. Why do we think that society is moving towards certain goals? Well, because the way that our society was formed is through a belief in a God who is shaping history. So anytime we have this belief that history is headed somewhere— that belies that the foundation of this belief is a Judeo-Christian worldview in which God is directing history. So these things are implicit on many levels, but they are there. You know, one idea that we haven't read about, we just haven't, I'm sure there are books about this, but the idea of Christians and pagans. And this is a great place to define, in my view, when I use the word pagan, what I mean is not people that worship Zeus or Isis or any, or something like that. People who don't share mm-hmm. those underlying biblical values. So for example, in the first century, Christianity comes along and they're basically preaching to pagans. And I don't mean that in a derogative sense. What I mean is people that don't share those values. In our society, there aren't very many pagans is what these books are saying, is that even though they they take these things different places, they're still subconsciously operating on Christian principles. But I would say on this topic that you talk about, you do see us devolving back into some paganism. For example, the idea of utilitarianism versus the value of individuals. I think abortion and euthanasia are both eroding the Christian idea of the dignity of all human beings and replacing it with what I'm going to call a pagan idea of utility. How useful are you? So I just think that's not the point of these books, but I think it's a great time to talk about what does a pagan world look like? A pagan world looks like one that doesn't even share these underlying assumptions. It's a good, that's a good definition of that. And interesting because you're seeing that as you mentioned, in certain ways, kind of emerging in the post-Christian world. Some people are stepping so far out of a Christian tradition that that we are seeing a resurgence of some of these pagan ideas. 
I think in some ways the resurgence of the occult, which is really popular mm. right now, even if it's kind of mm -hmm. the occult light, but you see these little shops and tarot right. cards and palm readers and connecting with the inner eye and all of these things. This new fascination with uh, Wicca or occult or whatever you want to talk about it, that that's an emergence of paganism. That right. is what you saw in pre-Christian cultures is kind of a superstitious, mm -hmm. animistic, polytheistic, spiritualist kind of worldview. And, and I think we're seeing uh, a resurgence in that because it's a nice spiritual but not religious alternative for some people. Right. But it right. does highlight the contrast between if you go down that path, what you're going to realize pretty quickly is – these values that, you know, Scrivener is going to say these values that we take for granted, like the air we breathe, actually have no place in a religion like that. It truly is pagan. It's not something like mm -hmm. secular humanism, which is an atheistic upshot of Christianity, which shares right. a lot of Christian ethics, but doesn't mm -hmm. share its theology. Paganism is a true alternative in some ways. And I and I think we're seeing... Uh, early stages of some of the fruit of that, going back to a, a, a pagan time, both on the left and the right, you're going to see a rejection of what we'd call, quote-unquote, liberal values, which is these books are showing are kind of Christian values. And, and that will be an interesting development. It will. That's something to watch in the coming years, because as great a divide as we think there is between, say, secular humanism and evangelical Christianity, I don't think we've seen anything yet until you see uh, actual fundamentally pagan ideologies. And again, I don't think that's a threat. That's what the first century had. But I do think we might find ourselves uh, seeing an emergence of that in our in our world. Mm -hmm. The thing I thought was most interesting about this book is the last section, which starts with a chapter called The Kingdom Without a King. And he yes. opens this section. I mentioned this in the last podcast. He opens this section talking about George Floyd, which is a really... It's a really interesting choice because, and and part of this is, so Glenn Scrivener, we didn't really do a true introduction. Glenn Scrivener is an Australian guy. He runs a, a ministry called Speak Life. Uh, he's been an author, a speaker. He's been a filmmaker. He does a lot of different things, but he's effectively a cultural apologetics kind of guy. And it's been interesting to me to look at people outside the United States commenting on George Floyd because one, they bring an interesting perspective to it. I think his perspective is really interesting. But two, I think in some ways there's part of the polarity of George Floyd that's missed if you're if you weren't in America. Um, so his take on it will will hit differently to different people that read this book. But his fundamental point is you have on the one hand George Floyd who dies as an innocent victim at the hands of the state. That's the way that this story is read by some people. Mm -hmm. And this story resonates because that is essentially the gospel story. And so he he makes this point really in a, in a cool way. He says, in a sense, the whole book is an answer to the question, why did George Floyd's death affect the world so profoundly? Well, it gripped us because our moral universe has been birthed out of similar pains. An unarmed victim of oppression, an uncaring authority, a public and humiliating death, and a world that came to see the virtue of the victim and the tyranny of the oppressor. 
the fascinating part about that is these victim stories really are a product of the cross. You know, this Jesus dying on the cross did elevate victims and the oppressed and the marginalized in a way that wasn't true before. This is a distinctly Christian thing. Mm-hmm. But what he points out is the people on the other side, you know, so the people that reacted like, well, I, you know, I really don't think George Floyd was an innocent person. And maybe the state did overstep in some ways. But, you know, look at look at what happened, the injustices on the other side. You know, the policemen, right. it was trial by accusation. You know, they they were made an so, example out of, you know, the, the idea was tried as opposed to the crime, mm-hmm. the riots, you know. So you have this whole other side of things. And the point that he makes is those those accusations are actually made from Christian uh, assumptions as well. Right. So what happens is you have visceral reactions on both sides of this one event, and you step back and you say, why do people care so much on both sides of this? Well, both of them are reacting in fundamentally Christian ways to this event. Right. And that, I think, is a really, really good point. I mean, I think there's good points to make besides that, but noticing how distinctly Christian this whole opposition is on both sides is fascinating. And he put, and he makes this point. On and on it goes, back and forth the arguments run with one set of Christian-ish, and ish, you know, is the is the important thing here. This isn't to say yeah. these are all Christians, but Christian-ish right. instincts clashing with one another, whether people realize it or not, these culture wars involve devout believers hurling Bible verses at one another. They've just forgotten the references. I thought that was right. a really good point. Oh, I definitely do. I think, you know, I think it was Tom Holland in his book that pointed out, for example, the, the fact that both sides hold their opinions so vehemently is there's an underlying assumption that your fundamental values are universal. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I thought my values were relative, you know, live and let live, I might say, well, I can see why you think this this was bad about Ray or about uh excuse me, Floyd. But for me, uh, you know, I see it differently, but okay, you know, we have different points of view. That's not the way this goes. Everybody holds their beliefs with a lot of passion. And underlying that is the idea, the assumption, the hidden assumption that my values are universal. And I believe it was Mm -hmm. Tom Holland that pointed out that that in and of itself is a Christian idea, that there are universal values. And that is sort of the, again, to paraphrase Scrivener, that's the water we swim in. And that's what makes that so heated. Yeah, so the point that he goes on to make in that chapter uh, gets even better on this point. He talks about how when you have a situation like that and you have these Christian values that are manifesting themselves in a situation, but but you've disconnected those values from the Christian story, you get exactly what we have in America today, which is what feels very unchristian anti-Christian even in certain ways, and yet birthed out of Christian society and culture. And so this was a really interesting point where he starts to talk about what happens when you take the seven values that he's talked about in this book and you detach them from the Christian story, or you you could say detach them from biblical teaching or theology or whatever, but you basically have the kingdom, you know, the deliverances of, of Christianity without Christ, and he gives three examples in uh, ways that hit right at that kind of pop culture, culture mm-hmm. wars, 
uh, values conversation. When you detach equality from the Christian story, you get hyper-individualism. So it's everything must be on the same level. Everything must be justified. You know, you can't tell me that I can't be this or do this because we have this equality. Well, that, it's, it's an equality that's been separated from the foundations that gave you that equality, which is the essential dignity of human beings as being made in the image of God, connected to a right. creator. Right. Uh, when you when you detach compassion, you get competitive victimhood, which we're seeing in our culture. Right. You know, how, how can you arbitrate between the radical feminists and the transgender uh, groups that are saying that they you know are turfs? Well, that's a really good question because both of them have this kind of compassion, but it's uh -huh. detached from anything else. You need something like biological science or Christian values mm -hmm. or something. You need some mechanism to differentiate between the two and arbitrate. But you don't have that. All you have is this floating idea of compassion, which has led to competitive victimhood. Consent is another one. When you take, when you make consent the number one value for sexuality, you get recreational sexual activity. You get sex that's detached from things like family, procreation, responsibility. And you know, he goes on to say consent is an important piece but if it's the only piece, it doesn't provide any clarity. So you get kind of sexual right. pandemonium like we're living in right now. That was another point that I hadn't thought of in quite that way. But this whole title of kingdom without the king is essentially what happens when you take for granted the things that we have, but you detach them from where they came from. It's almost like popping a, a flower off from the stalk. It will look good for a while, even smell good for right. a while. But you know that there's a time limit on this. And one of the strong points that he makes at the end of the book is when we are looking at our, you know, Christian-ish society, we've got to know that there's a time, there's there's a ticking clock on some of these values that have been borrowed from Christianity, right? But without the Christian story. Yeah, and I think in our culture, it's a it is a good explanatory vehicle for why some of the things in our culture are running out of gas. Uh, and that you begin to see the flower wilt, to use your analogy. I do think there's a uh, couple of interesting implications of that idea, because I do think kingdom without the king is a powerful idea in this book. And here, the first one is this. He says, in order to pursue the kingdom without the king, we have to dethrone the person of Christ and install abstract values instead. Now, they may be great values. These are Christian values. But when you install the values instead, the problem should be obvious. Persons can forgive you. Values cannot. Values can only judge you. This, to me, is at not a complete explanation, but at the heart of the whole woke movement. There are some Christian values buried deep underneath there. The problem is when you dethrone the king, you now have the woke religion, so to speak, the religion built on these principles but you no longer have redemption. You no longer mm -hmm. can be forgiven. You no longer have mercy. You simply have the relentless judgment of a value system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's a really good point. And he, he calls this the curse of semi-Christianity, which is a great mm -hmm. phrase. The curse of semi-Christianity. Mm -hmm. semi and he quotes Douglas Murray, who's another one of these people that's writing about these ideas right now. He's an atheist, but has discovered that he is essentially, you know, a la Tom Holland, he is essentially Christian in his outlook of the world. 
And yeah. in, in The Madness of Crowds, he he writes, and this is, and Scrivener quotes this, one of the consequences of the death of God, uh, as one of the consequences, Frederick Nietzsche foresaw that people could find themselves stuck in cycles of Christian theology with no way out. Right. Specifically, that people would inherit the concepts of guilt, sin, and shame, but would be without the means of redemption, which the Christian religion also offered. Today, we do seem to live in a world where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. So in in Tim Keller's Forgive book, which we talked about several months ago, he quoted Liz Brunick, who's another one of these people that is, is writing on these topics and is observing. You have a society that is obsessed with justice and atonement, mm-hmm. but has no resources for forgiveness. Right. And Scrivener would call that the curse of semi-Christianity. All the guilt, all the judging, like you said, uh, law but no grace, you know, no right. mechanism, no resources for true forgiveness. Yeah, you basically depersonalized uh, and or dethroned Christ from this system. And what we're seeing now is up front, the values look good. And in fact, we agree on the fundamental value. We may not agree in the way they're being applied, but we agree on the values. But the further you go without Christ with those values, the uglier this gets. You know, for me, Cole, the second thing that comes from that, so the kingdom without the king, you know, the first thing we just talked about is the tyranny of values or, you know, this this idea of a deficient Christianity. But the second is really for Christians and a reminder that if we are going to evangelize people, if we are talking to people about, quote, becoming Christians, we shouldn't evangelize them trying to get them to accept Christian values a la social justice Christianity, we need to evangelize and speak about the person of Jesus Christ, because they may have fundamentally deep down Christian values, but what they don't have is the person of Jesus Christ. And I thought that was an interesting idea about our approach to evangelism. What do you think about that? there's There's a lot of interesting points that kind of flow from that. First of all, I think it's a great reminder that we actually aren't trying to convert people to just being nice little Christian right. people yeah. uh, in the sense of we just want them to fit in with whatever whatever culture of Christianity happens to be the thing right now. You know, if we're right. trying to get back to the idyllic 1950s, if we're trying to get back to the religious right, if we're trying to get towards whatever you know, that that actually isn't true Christianity. It's a manifestation of a Christian culture for certain Christian values played out, but it's really not Christianity. And so we, it's a great reminder for the church that we, we aren't trying to convert people to a cultural manifestation of Christianity. We're trying to convert people to Christ. They need to have a personal encounter with and relationship with Christ. The other thing is it does provide an interesting apologetic vehicle in that one of the mm-hmm. ways that we can approach this topic is if some of the values are there and people have a desire, what we need to do is reconnect those back to the source of the desire. So this is that subversive fulfillment idea. Okay, so you believe in equality. Well, the only way to really get that is here. It's by connecting it back to where it came from originally, which is the Christian story. And what he does at the end is he divides people up into these nuns, people that don't have any religion, which is the kind of 
you know, if you've read the statistics, it's the rising, you know, religious affiliation is no religion, just none. Mm-hmm. Spiritual, but not not religious. The duns, this would be like the deconstructing, want to leave the church, church hurt, doubts, you know, all of that wrapped into one. And then the ones, which is people that are Christians. And he gives advice kind of along these lines to each of these. The nuns that he says, you need to realize that everything is living by faith. So don't take a leap of faith as in, you know, to be a Christian, you have to take this wild, un- unknowing leap of faith. Go ahead and realize that if you believe in something like equality or compassion or consent or freedom or progress, you've already taken a leap of faith because there's right. nothing in that worldview that you have right now that would get you to those things. So right. actually, you need to uh, not take the leap of faith, but find a place where your feet can rest and be fulfilled in the things that you do believe. So that that was interesting. Jesus is really the only true ground to stand on if you believe in mm-hmm. these things. To the Duns, this is a, a very similar argument to the one that Tom Holland was making. You probably dislike the church for Christian reasons. So he goes right. through, he's got a whole page of these. Well, the historical injustices that the church has done. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you know that those things are unjust? Well, all for Christian reasons, really. Uh, you know, somebody did something wrong to me. And 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 why would you be justified in standing up to that? Well, because of Christian reason. Anyway, he goes through all of these. And so to the people that are deconstructing, it's kind of that message of you you probably dislike the church for Christian reasons, but wait until you see what the alternative is. Again, back to that kind of pagan discussion we had right. earlier. Paganism is not going to find you, is not going to give you any of the resources you need for the things that you want to believe in, especially compared to the church. And then third, for the ones, his advice is be weird. You know, these weird, mm-hmm. this weird acronym, uh, the weirdness uh, that we have as Christians is we know the source of these things that people take for granted. And so we want to reconnect them back to the story, back to the values, back to the theology of Christianity. So I think all of those give us a bit of an apologetics brief on how should we be going about in a in a culture where Christianity has been so ascendant that it's taken for granted now, but Christ has been dropped. Part of what we should be doing is just connecting people back to Christ, using that as a bridge to get back to the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I agree. And that segues into another point of his that I like pretty well, and that is that everyone has a faith position, as you just mentioned. And so when we evangelize or when we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about the person of Christ, but also we just need to remember that we're not talking to someone who who is an unbeliever. We're just talking to someone who's a believer in something else and something that might even be based way deep down on some of the same things we believe. For example, he says it this way. He says, I've got the choice of believing two impossible things. I can either believe that the world is constituted so that God took on flesh, was crucified, and rose three days later. And that's to someone that doesn't accept the person of Christ, doesn't become, quote, Christian. And the way we understand it, you would say, I can't believe that. That's just too preposterous. But given that Christianity infuses everything in our society, here's your choice. He said, or... I can believe that human beings invented this preposterous story, and somehow it is stretched into every atom of our culture. Well, that seems pretty unlikely as well. Mm -hmm. He's using that to say, everybody's got a leap of faith here. Or not a leap of faith, but in other words, everyone's expressing faith when you get down to it. So I thought that was also a good reminder, is that sometimes we put people in categories of believers and unbelievers, 
And perhaps it's more useful to use the categories of believers in the person of Christ and people who believe in other ideals mm-hmm. uh, or who do not believe in that. And I thought that that would be an interesting approach. But what do you think that means for us in terms of evangelizing, realizing we're evangelizing people who have faith that just isn't the same? I think realizing that is a is a huge piece of evangelism. And I and I think sometimes it's people having to come to that realization themselves. And sometimes I think it's gently pointing that out and talking through some of these issues and showing the richness of the Christian faith and the Christian tradition to answer some of these lingering questions. You know, it seems to me that this may be the exact position in which Tim Keller found himself. And it seems like this is Keller's approach. And that is, I have people that believe in Jesus Christ with Christian values. I have people that don't believe in Jesus Christ, but they fundamentally have these Christian values, like the dignity of humanity and so forth. And it seems like Tim Keller was was trying to bridge this by saying, you and I agree on certain things, but I know why and you don't. Would that is that a fair characterization of maybe the way Tim Keller approached evangelism in that situation? I, I think that's definitely true. And, and I think maybe Tom Holland aside, I don't know if Tom Holland ever read any Tim Keller, but certainly the other two, Glenn Scrivener and Andrew Wilson, in the same way that you can't have these values without Christianity, you really couldn't have either of these books without Tim Keller. I mean, he is right upstream right. from this whole approach. This whole cultural mm-hmm. apologetics approach is very Tim Keller. And I, and I look forward to more people who have been influenced by Keller and the people that influenced Keller, you know, Jonathan Edwards and... Richard Lovelace and many of these other big influences in his life, thinking beyond, you know, the edge of where Keller went. I mean, I think this is kind of a natural progression in the yeah. way that we do cultural apologetics. I, I think one observation culturally to make is it can sound kind of discouraging to say, hey, we've got all these things. People already believe in all these things. Um, so that puts us at a little bit of a dead end to say, what does Christianity have that everybody else doesn't? But that that wouldn't be a very good takeaway from these books because two things are true. Number one, the, these things are are selectively applied, right? That's that's why you get right. the cultural phenomenon that we have, where we have certain things that you couldn't have in a culture that hadn't been Christian, but you certainly couldn't have these things in a culture that wasn't post-Christian in certain ways right. that had left right. Christ behind. But the second thing is, and I, I think maybe this is the cultural observation I came away with in all of these books is there's a bit of the argument. I, maybe I'd call it the why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free argument. You know, why be a Christian when you can get things like compassion and justice and science for free? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the milk's going to go bad. You know, that that's part of this argument is it, <laughs> when, it's detached from, when it's detached from its analogy. source for long enough, yeah. these things are going to spoil and they're going to rot. Yeah. And I, I think you're already seeing that. The, the book that we've also talked about in this series is Justin Brierley's The Surprising Return of Belief in God. And the surprising mm-hmm. return is linked to that very concept. The storyline that people were living in after you know the golden age of Christianity in America, if there ever was such a thing, was some combination of individual expressivism, Darwinian evolution, mm-hmm. Freudian psychology. You know, you can right. you can mix and match a worldview out of all right. these other alternatives to Christianity. But what people are starting to see is that is a very unfulfilling way to live. People right. are actually not happy living that way. Certain people are for certain periods of time, but mm-hmm. on the whole, 
we are a society that is in decline in terms of mental health, stability, right. uh, you know, certain outcomes that you want to see society-wide. And a lot of that results from the fact that the story that many people are living by is not delivering on its promises. Right. So when the, when the milk starts to spoil, people are going to be looking for the cow again. And that's an opportunity for Christians who have remained faithful, who have not compromised to the point of, you know, going all in on the milk as opposed to the cow, to use the analogy, to step in and say, hey, we actually know where there's an unending source of these things. And mm -hmm. it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I, I think there's a temptation to be maybe a little bit discouraged by all of this. Oh, we, this is a Christian world. This is, you know, all the values are here. But it's encouraging to think once you separate those two, there's going to be a huge opportunity to take people back to the source of where these things came from in the first place. Yeah, I've got a story that illustrates that from my childhood. As I remember when I was fairly young, my dad would... Uh, would do some handyman things around the house and he had this tool belt and you know he had a screwdriver and hammer and all this stuff and a little tool belt right and so he would get the tool belt and he would go fix something and i was old enough to tag along and watch and want to try to help and hand him the tools and things like that and he would fix things and i remember thinking you know that wow i want to fix things too and so i decided i'd do my own fixing you know something went wrong dad's not home and i told Mom, I, I can do it. And I realized, I thought, all I really need is to get dad's tools because I've seen him use that screwdriver before and he fixed this problem. So I got dad's tools. And of course, I can't fix the problem. I thought it was the tools. And then, of course, mm -hmm. you know, this is a child's uh, mind. I realized, wait, it's not just the tools. It's the person using the tools. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what I hear you saying is we can take the principles, but the principles are not power behind living a, a full human life. It's Jesus Christ behind that. And I, I think he makes a good point. If you disconnect those two, then you, you see a lot of what we're seeing today. I thought that had a lot of explanatory power. Yeah, and I, and I think that that is the upshot from these books is there is going to be huge opportunity. If you can see what's going on in our culture, you can see where we've come from, you understand how Christianity plays itself out in the real world, not just abstractly, but in the real world, in these things that we believe in, this water that we swim in, should be huge opportunities for apologetics, for cultural apologetics in this future generation. Well, Cole, I have a question for you. As I was reading this book, this, this question came to mind, and it was this. I was thinking about the first century church, and they are evangelizing. They're telling this story uh, the, this reality, but I mean, they're telling the story of, of Christianity, the gospel to people who are pagan, who don't share their beliefs. And you see Christianity explode. Well, along comes Constantine and the quote, conquest of the Roman Empire and Christianity prevails, so to speak. And it's now legal and becomes widespread. And off we go through history and a la Tom Holland, we get to today where people don't think they're Christian, but they really do have not pagan ideas, they have Christian ideas deep down underneath. So my question to you is, is the biggest problem that we have as Christians today, the fact that we won? We're no longer evangelizing people who are the same as the first century. Does this make it harder for us that Christianity has so infiltrated the culture we live in? Well, I th there is a there is a sense of of kind of spiritual inoculation, you know, just just enough of Christianity to make sure that you don't actually become a Christian. 
But like like we've been talking about, I just think the the half life on that is pretty short. Mm-hmm. So trying to live that way for very long is going to reveal that something is missing. And so while the connection point for the early church and kind of the radical differentiation between Christians and non-Christians um, manifested in certain areas, that's still going to happen. It just may not be the same areas as the first century. So, you know, to to go back to the Tim Keller example, one of the interesting things that he said was when he first came to New York, what he realized was people were lacking meaning in their life. They were lacking Mm -hmm. uh, figuring out what mattered in their life. But 30 years after being in New York, he realizes it's not as much meaning anymore as it is identity. Identity is the new area where there's the biggest need or the biggest difference between the Uh non-Christian and the Christian. And so um, instead of talking about meaning as much, you know, he's starting to shift towards talking about identity. And I think the same thing is true for us. There was radical differences between Christians in the first century. Now that Christianity has kind of saturated our world, there are radical differences in other places too. The task of evangelism and apologetics is figuring out where those windows of opportunity are. Where's the need? Where is the unknown? Where is the implicit assumption that can be uncovered and have a great opening for a conversation about Jesus Christ? That's a really good uh, point and an astute point is we're doing the same thing. We're just aiming at a slightly different target. I think that's a really good point. In the first century, people were trying to make sense out of life. And is there anything beyond this? And you know, what's the meaning of life? And today, I do think people have been told that they're supposed to construct their identity. People have no idea how to construct their identity. And people are looking for, who am I? And how do I even decide who I want to be? And trying on, like sets of clothes, trying on different identities and finding none of them that work. And, and that may be the target to which you go, because obviously Jesus Christ not only brings meaning to life, he also brings an identity to life. And that I think that's a really good point you make, is we just need to aim at the whole. You know, they said there's a God-sized hole in every heart. Well, let's aim at the hole in this culture's heart. Well, I would I would recommend any of these books as a way of discovering that and mm-hmm. seeing, you know, how the human heart is made and the things that we long for. We're going to be giving away a copy of The Air We Breathe this month. And so by the time you listen to this, probably check Instagram and that giveaway will be live. Uh, but really, I would recommend any of these three books and pick pick the one that you like. If you love history, if you love kind of the eclectic 1776, or if you really want to get down into how do we start to apply this in apologetics, you'll like Scrivener's book. And uh, But you can't go wrong with any of them. And so uh, that wraps these three episodes. We're getting ready to start a new series on the ancient empires of the world, especially those that uh, come into play in the Bible. We'll be doing Assyria. We'll be doing Babylon, Persia, Greece. We may do a couple others. But uh, we're going to be looking at these ancient empires that come into the story of Israel and many times in brutal ways, many times in very fortuitous ways that God uses these empires. And so uh, starting next week, we'll be hitting those empires, and we'll be doing that for a little while leading up to our C.S. Lewis series. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.
Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.